0: Welcome to the Breaking into Startups podcast, where we feature stories of people with non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. On today's episode, we sit down with Hasib Qureshi, who became one of the world's best poker players at 19 years old and tried to become a software engineer after giving all of his money away. It was a lot harder than he thought, but after he got his first offer on the table, he was able to use his negotiation skills to lend a $250,000 offer as an engineer. This episode is really dope because he shares all kinds of stepping stones about deliberate practice, how to pick a boot camp, how to negotiate your offer, and his passion for effective altruism. Check it out. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Argentino Timor Meister, and this is the Breaking Stars Podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today?
1: Yeah, so we're sitting at App Academy tonight. It's a beautiful Wednesday night. We have this gorgeous view of the bay. You can kind of see the sunset. And we have a very special guest on the show tonight. Arthur, please introduce the guest. Yeah, today I'm super excited to have Hasib Karachi with us. Hasib is a software engineer at Airbnb. And he has an extremely interesting story of going from being an English major to a professional poker player. He's been at the top of the charts. He wrote a book about being in poker. But what's interesting about his story is that after dominating the poker world, he decided to become a software engineer. And over the last uh, year and a half or two years, he's been able to become head of product at App Academy. And then from there, he negotiated his way up to one of the hottest startups in the valley, Airbnb. So, I see, before we jump into your story, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and kind of what you were up to before you got into tech.
2: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me, guys. It's a total pleasure to, <laughs> totally. to sit here and, and share this uh, evening with you guys. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, take it back to the start. So, I was born in Texas. My parents are immigrants from Pakistan. And so, I remember, you know, my first memory, I think, is probably growing up in, we were in Dallas very briefly, and then we grew up in a suburb of Austin. And I remember my parents being very, very focused on education when I was young, my parents being pretty religious, being Muslim family. And, um, you know, I was always a very, I was always a very shy kid. I was very introverted. I was very kind of like closed into my own world. And, um, but I was also very competitive. And I think a lot of that came out in, one, it came out in academics. It also came out in like playing video games or sometimes playing, you know, sports, soccer and stuff like that when I was a kid. And that kind of grew more and more as I, as I grew up. So when I was, um, I was a really sharp kid and when I was, uh, I think I was 15 when I went into this program called TAMS, which is like this early college admissions program for kids who are really into math and science. So I thought at the time that I wanted to do physics and I was like super into physics because it just seemed to me this like beautiful abstract thing of like sitting in a laboratory and like divining the way the universe works. And I was just convinced that that's going to be what I did. And then I went off to this, you know, this TAMS place, basically at university at the age of 15. And uh, I hated it. You know, there was nothing about it that was appealing to me, and uh, I was kind of at a loss for what I wanted to do. And I, you know, started to get more and more interested in things like philosophy and literature and poetry, which really engaged me a lot more. And that was around the time that I found poker. And that was very, it was very haphazard. It wasn't really planned. I wasn't, I wasn't really somebody who had gambled much or knew much about gambling or really knew anybody who did gambling. I barely even knew the rules of poker. But one day, some friends of mine invited me to play a game of poker, and I didn't know what I was doing, didn't know what calling was, didn't know how betting worked. It was all very, you know, it was totally alien to me. And, you know, when I lost the game, I lost all my play chips, and then I, you know, went back to my dorm room. I was like, man, I this is annoying. I want to know how this game works, and I want to know, like, how I can beat other people at this game. So I started reading up on some of the strategy of the game, and I ended up coming across this article about this generation of poker players who were making all this money, you know. Figuring out this game in a way that people hadn't figured out before. And I was like, damn, I think I could do that. That doesn't sound that hard. turns out it's really hard, but you know. It's not impossible. It's yeah, it's not impossible. Exactly. So I started at the age of 15, or I guess at the age of 16 then. And I started with 50 bucks without being able to play or make any money of my own. And I very slowly grinded it up until by the end of one year, I'd turned that $50 into 100K. And at three years later, I was one of the very best poker players in the world at No Limit (laughs) Hold'em. How old were you? Uh, I was was 19 at the time. Wow. And like, I just bought my first house. Things were really crazy. Like this whole poker thing had kind of rolled into this huge avalanche that I wasn't really expecting. Because I, at the the time, actually, I wanted to be a philosophy professor. That was my life's goal. And I remember actually at the time when I finished TAMS and I was going to apply to get into the University of Texas at Austin, I remember getting this big argument with my dad after I was making all this money as a poker player about studying philosophy instead of studying physics, because my dad was always like, "No, you've got to study something technical." My dad was an electrical engineer, and so he had this technical background. My mom was very much the opposite. But as a kid, he always ingrained in us like, you need to do something technical, you know because he's like, you know he's this immigrant. he was able to make a living for himself. when he came over, he was basically penniless. you know he had almost nothing. and you know by the time that I was in You know, by the time I was 15, 16, we were were middle class because he had built a career for himself as an immigrant. And uh, he tried to impress that on us. And of course, we totally rejected it. And so I was like, no, philosophy, that's what I'm interested in. You know, I'm motivated by the life of the mind. I don't care about making money. It's totally, you know, totally abstract to me. (laughs) So poker was just a totally insane roller coaster. And, you know, about uh, five years into it, I finally got off and I... Kind of, you know, by the time I was 21 is when I quit and I really had no idea what I was going to do because, you know, I'd spent five years of my life, basically my whole adolescence, learning this game and mastering this game and really investing myself in this identity as being a great poker player. And once I decided to leave all that behind and just totally abandon it and start over from scratch, I didn't really know who I was or what I was going to do with myself. You know, I was 21, had, didn't, you know, I withdrew from school, so I didn't even have a college degree all I had is just you know, a chunk of change and uh, you know, just myself. And so I decided to come back to the States and really kind of work on myself and develop myself as a person. So I had to go back to school, finish my degree. And uh, I worked as a mental coach for a little while, which is basically, I worked with poker players on the psychological and emotional side of poker. And I wrote a book, as you guys mentioned, and I also ended up giving away all the money I made as a poker player, wow. uh, I think in around 2013, and deciding that I wanted to start over with a blank slate. You know, none of the stuff that it came to me through poker, I wanted to be dependent on, you know, I wanted to basically totally mold myself from scratch. And so around then is the time that I thought about coming into tech. And, you know, I was weighing a couple of different things, like, you know, maybe law school, maybe business school. I always knew, though, that I wanted to come to Silicon Valley. That was like the one constant. I remember when I was thinking about going to law school, I was like, yeah, I want to work in a law firm in San Francisco that does law for startups which is a really (laughs) stupid way to make it into tech but that was actually the way i was thinking about it because i because i thought to myself i have no skills that would make me capable of actually coming into tech directly right like there are people who've been doing this since they were you know 12 years old i'm never gonna be able to catch up to those guys i didn't study anything technical in school i ended up finishing my degree in english with a minor in philosophy so you know i got to get in through the back door is the way that i saw it and at the time i was like oh maybe business school get an mba you know And then what happened was a client of mine, actually a coaching client, was a he was starting a startup and he invited me to come join it. And it was out in San Jose. And I was like, wow, this is a great opportunity. I should totally do this. Like just getting my hands, like my first instinct when I want to do something new is just jump into it and start rooting around and figure out what I can do. And I thought, great, this is like the opportunity to do that. So I asked him like, okay, I don't have any skills though. So what could I do? And he was like, well, we need someone to do marketing. I was like, ah, shit, I don't really want to do marketing. (laughs) But I was like, all right, I'm going to learn what it takes to become a great marketer. And they were like a few months away from funding. So I you know, started going online, studying, you know, looking at all these articles on growth hacking, because that was like the thing yeah. that was touted around all the time back then. And what I saw was that you needed to be technical. You needed to know how to code. And so I was like, all right, I guess I got to learn how to code. So I started doing all these online tutorials on HTML, JavaScript, SQL. And I found that one, I really liked it. What were some of those tutorials? Uh, I think it was all just Code Academy at the time. You know, I was doing a bunch of other things simultaneously. And so, you know, basically in the evenings and, and weekends, I was working on going through these just very basic tutorials, just kind of like getting my feet wet, you know. And I had the revelation as I was working through these that one, I really liked it. Two, I was picking it up pretty quickly. And so I seemed to have somewhat of a knack for it. And third was that I completely hated marketing. So <laughs> with all this, I was like, all right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to become a developer because like this is way more fun and it's way more interesting to actually try to build the product rather than try to market it. And basically my plan was, okay, I'm going to learn how to become a developer as fast as I can. And then by the time these guys get funding, I'm going to beg them to hire me as a developer. And if they <laughs> don't, then I'll figure out what happens then. So did you
1: um, know about the whole like, tech ecosystem com- being in Texas? Or did you kind of learn, you kind of had an idea and then you moved out to San Jose or San Francisco and
2: then you kind of learned about this whole startup scene? I mean, not, I had some awareness of the startup scene and I'd read things about entrepreneurs, you know, but it was very much like as a sort of distant world that I'd Mm -hmm. never really be able to take part in. And I was living in Austin at the time when I found out about coding boot camps. Mm -hmm. And how did you hear about those? A friend of mine was really interested in him and he had always been like talking about the idea that one day he was going to join a boot camp and quit his job, which he wasn't doing. Like it was just sort of like this pie in the sky thing. And I think it just, the pieces kind of connected when I realized that this was a fast track way to become a developer. And it was really risky and there was no guarantee that it would work. But, you know, I was like, this, this seems like the best way in. So kind of in one frenzied weekend, I applied to every single boot camp in the Bay Area. And I ended up, you know, I studied my ass off, tried to learn as much Ruby as I could. And I ended up getting into App Academy, which was my top choice. Mm-hmm. So not really knowing what the future would have in store for me, I packed my bags, moved to San Francisco and started here at App Academy, at Coding Bootcamp, learning how to code. Very cool. Wow. Yeah. What a great story. Uh, and uh,
1: when you were applying to App Academy, how would you just describe their interview process?
2: Yeah. So their, their interview process was um, basically, at the time, I don't know if it's changed by now, but at the time I remember there's like an online coding portion that you do that's sort of the, you know the set of questions that are timed. When you pass that, you go on and do a live coding interview. And that, I remember just being scared shitless at the time, just like so nervous and like stuttering and just, you know, totally, I couldn't sleep the night before, you know, it was, it was really, really intense, right? And there was this, uh, you know, there's this like long coding problem that takes like 40 minutes to solve. And I remember having no idea if I did well, you know, it, was, it seemed totally nebulous to me, if I'd nailed it or if I'd bombed it, you know, because the guy who was interviewing me just gave me no feedback. But it turns out I did well, and then I did a final interview with Kush, the founder, and, you know, everything went well, and they were like, yeah, you know, come on out and for our next cohort. Wow. And. This is a new education model that's popping up, this bootcamp thing.
0: Yeah. And so there's a lot of them. And so what actually led you to choose App Academy out of every
2: one that you were researching? Yeah. So that's a good question. So for me, you know, one is that initially when I started applying, I had no idea which were the stronger bootcamps and which were weaker. And at the time also, there wasn't that much information that was readily available. You know, I remember there being like Yelp reviews and things like that, where everybody just says their bootcamp's great. And a few people say the boot camp is terrible, you know? So it's really, it's like, I don't know, it's like a restaurant with three reviews, right? Like you don't really know what that means. It could just be the weirdest person who decides to post on Yelp. Or your mom. Or my mom. Yeah, my mom posts a lot of. Yelp. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's like, so, you know, after I started applying, I think the biggest thing that kind of clinched App Academy for me was seeing all the interview processes for different boot camps, And like some of them, basically, they, when they interviewed me, they just called me on the phone and like asked me about myself. And then they gave me an acceptance. And I was like, okay, if this is the bar for getting into this bootcamp, this is probably not the place I should go. You know? And like, you know, I think a really good proxy for what these bootcamps are like. And you know, I've come to understand this more since working at App Academy and also like seeing more of the bootcamp ecosystem that you know, honestly, the biggest difference between bootcamps is not the curriculum. It's not the teachers. It's not the network. Most of them are actually pretty similar. Like most of them don't really make that much of a difference. The thing that makes a difference is your peers and the rate at which and the intensity with which you're going to be learning around them. And that's the biggest difference. If you go into the place that's the hardest to get into, that's where you're gonna be surrounded by like the really driven, just insane people who are gonna work their ass off to try to become developers. And that's I think the biggest difference between a really great bootcamp and a bootcamp that, you know, is not so and great. I think
0: that's a great philosophy to join any type of organization. Yeah, totally.
1: But especially bootcamps because it's pretty unknown until you actually get to the place to, to see like the intensity levels. So the best proxy is the interview process. So if right. it's a breeze, then most likely they just let everyone in, which mm-hmm. means the filter is not there. And then you're going to be starting most likely from very foundational concepts and you're going to spend out of 12 weeks that you're there, you're going to spend maybe 20, 30% covering the very, very basics. And stuff you could have probably learned in Cold Academy. So
0: yeah, so, so you got through the interview, mm-hmm. you get into the bootcamp, you're surrounded by all these really smart people. Yeah. How'd you feel? Was it easy?
2: Uh, it was not easy. I don't think anybody who goes through a bootcamp finds it easy. Like they're really, really intense mm-hmm. and they're, you know, they're these life consuming projects, you know, but it was a lot of fun. And I think that's one thing that I think not everybody experiences in a boot camp is fun. Mm-hmm. I definitely had fun in the boot camp, but it was also like really hard, really intense, and really exhausting. And so, but basically what happened after I got in was I ended up rising up to the top of my class. You know, I worked my ass off while I was in there. Cause you know, for me, I had moved out to San Francisco with like a bag. You know, mm-hmm. that's all I had. I left all my stuff back in Austin. I was living in this really shitty dorm with like bunk beds with another guy who was going to App Academy. In just like one tiny little room, like smaller than the room that we're in now. And that was my life. You know, I just got up in the morning, went to App Academy, and like I was there until night and I'd come home and sleep or sometimes not sleep, depending on if we had assessment <laughs> the next day. <laughs> yeah. um, but that was basically what I did for three months. Wow. And uh, well, I guess two months. So at the end of two months, so it's a three month boot camp. At the end of two months, the founders of the boot camp actually decided to make me an offer to become an instructor in the boot camp. Mm-hmm. So That was it's funny actually because at the time I was I was actually planning to reject the offer because my thought was I know that I can do better than this. (laughs) 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 I was like so totally confident that I can do better. And I was like, you know, I my goal at the time, it's funny actually when I first came to San Francisco, my goal was Pivotal Labs. Because I thought Pivotal Labs was like the most hardcore, most insane to get into, like just the flyest company out in the world. And I was like, if I go to join a consultancy. I will learn so much code. I'll just be a code ninja. I'll be better than everybody, and that's how I'm going to make my start. And then people told me, like, ah, actually, it's not that hard to get into Pivotal. I mean, it's hard to get into Pivotal Labs, but it's not like it's not like a moonshot kind of goal.
1: It's right? not getting into like Facebook or Google yeah. right out of a bootcamp. It's yeah, not ten exactly. x. It's like
3: two it's x one like x or two x. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, it's a great company though. It is a fantastic company. But I, so I, you know, after talking to with a bunch of people, I amended my goal to be like, all right, I'm going to get into Facebook. So my goal when I was at, you know, at App Academy was I want to be good enough that I can get into Facebook. And so the idea of becoming a, an instructor for App Academy was like, well, this is just a detour. Why would I do this? This, mm-hmm. is, this is a waste of my time. But actually, I think what ended up clinching it for me was a few things. One is realizing that I would be able to solidify my knowledge mm-hmm. and like learn at a much, or just kind of like really have a deeper understanding of the stuff that I was learning by teaching it, but also just give me Actually, one of the pivotal things that was in my negotiation for the uh, instructor role was that I wanted the contract to be really short. And so for two reasons. One is that I didn't have health insurance at the time. They they didn't give health insurance. (laughs) But the other reason was that that would allow me to basically work at App Academy for four months Mm -hmm. and then go out and do my job search, you know. And so basically give me like this buffer where I would learn a lot, you know, get some uh, experience, get my chops, get get some experience. And then give myself a platform to do whatever I wanted to do after that. Yeah. So that's what, that's what ended up happening, except, you know, about a, a couple, three months in, they got away of the fact that I was looking for a job and trying to figure out how to do my job search. And they were like, Hey, we want you to come on full time. And, uh, initially they made me an offer to be head instructor and I turned it down because it wanted to be really weird to be head instructor after three months, but also because I knew that, you know, my goal wasn't to teach. My goal was to become an engineer Mm -hmm. and to eventually like make my way into tech so that I could be entrepreneurial. Like that was the original goal back when I was thinking about law school as a weird way to come into tech and then join a startup and be general counsel or whatever, (laughs) whatever it was I was imagining, you know, this was the way I was getting into that. And so, so I ended up negotiating at the time that instead of being instructor, I wanted to work on product because I thought that would be the most interesting thing that I could work on that would teach me the most that I didn't already know. And so I ended up picking a title, which was director of product, and uh, I signed an offer with them. And I ended up working there for about, for about nine months. Oh, wow. Yeah, as director of product. So what is the product in the,
1: in the context of a bootcamp? Is it curriculum or internal tools that people use? Like what, can you give us a few examples?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question. So I mean, at a startup the size of App Academy, at least at the time, director of product is just kind of a fluffy title. Mm-hmm. Like, Basically my job was to do anything that wasn't getting done. You know, so for example, I one thing was developing new products and figuring out different ways we could kind of, you know, take the fact that we have this core bootcamp experience, how can we monetize this in different ways rather than just, you know, 12-week courses, right? Are there other ways that we can make money off this model? But then other things just like I mean, one I was also doing a lot of the software engineering for our internal systems and our applicant trackings. I also was doing a lot of instruction, so like lecturing you know, I did all of our algorithms curriculum, which is like three weeks worth of lectures. And so I kind of played every role. You know, I was sort of was just kind of an everyman, which I think is very often what happens at startups that are fairly small, like App Academy, you know. So I did a lot of different stuff. Nice. And I learned a tremendous amount from it, which was really, which was really awesome. So it sounds
1: like you kind of entered this completely new field and you completely dominated App Academy, <laughs> saw how talented you are and how quickly you could learn that they asked you to come on board but you did the exact same thing with poker, right? So I'm curious, what are the similarities and what learning strategies you use to become world-class at a particular area? Because you did it with poker and then two years later, you do it with coding. So kind of what is the secret sauce?
2: Yeah, secret sauce. Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is about process. You know, mm-hmm. A lot of it is about the way in which you organize your learning and the way in which you structure your learning. You know, I, I definitely saw... Well, I think a lot of people think that the way to learn something is to just throw yourself into it and bash your head as long as you can. And, you know, learning is is a very for, for one, like we know a lot about learning now that we didn't know for example 20 years ago, right? So, you know, one of the big things that I talk about a lot in my blog is deliberate practice. Mm-hmm. So the idea of deliberate practice is basically when you're trying to learn something, you need to give yourself feedback when you make a mistake, mm-hmm. right? So for example, most people, you know, if they're writing some code they will just sit there and they will write code and then they'll wait for someone to tell them why all of it is bad, you know, or they'll never hear from anyone why all of it's bad. In fact, a lot of people will actually avoid getting that feedback that their code is bad, right? And the way that I would always approach it is that, you know, I would try to find the smallest possible thing that could be critiqued and then get feedback on it Mm -hmm. and then try to iterate on it, you know? So like constantly, like the feedback mechanism that you're building into your learning is so, so important. So, you know, for example, one thing that I did as I was preparing for App Academy was I was doing a lot of Code Wars. So mm-hmm. Code Wars—it's uh, like Hacker Rank, you know—it's one mm-hmm. of these sites where you can work on uh, very small coding problems. And the thing that I always did on Code Wars is that I would try to solve a problem, and you know, sometimes I wouldn't be able to solve it. Right? It would be just too challenging, or I wouldn't understand it. I would go and look at the solution, or if I even if I finished it, I would go look at the solution. And almost invariably, the solution was much more elegant than whatever I did. Mm-hmm. It was just—it used all this fancy Ruby magic. It was. Just concise, and there's something cl- really clever going on there that I would never have occurred to me, right? And I think most people, when they see that, they're like, "Cool, I'm dumb, or mm-hmm. I'll never be that good," right? That's I think most people's response to that. My response to that is that, okay, I'm going to learn how to do that. Yep. So what I would do is, without fail, every single time, I would go back, I'd, like I would read through the solution, make sure I understood it, like the really elegant solution, and I would go back, starting from scratch, and try to implement that solution from memory, just whatever it is the solution did, mm-hmm. you know. Can I implement it without looking back? And if I failed and I couldn't remember exactly how I did, I would do the exact same thing. I would scratch everything, go look at the solution again, make sure I understand it, and then go back and try to re-implement it from memory. But That's not awesome. really from memory, right? But like from understanding the pattern. Yeah. Yep.
0: yeah, That deliberate practice reminds me a lot of like learning to play the cello, same type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Where you listen to your end goal, like someone performing it like as best as you want it to sound. Mm-hmm. You learn the notes, you memorize it, you record yourself and then critique it as if like that was that recording. If it's not there, you keep working backwards. You, keep, you find the little spots. You keep working it over and over and over again until mm-hmm. you get better and you finally get there yeah. and interpret it your own way. And then you add your own style to it so it has your own beauty to it whenever somebody else finds it.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, awesome. I think music is a great, a great analog for learning how to code, especially like the thing in music, right? If you're, If you're playing a passage and you make a mistake, one of the big things in music is that you don't just keep playing because you're going to reinforce the bad habit, right? And again, that happens all the time in code where you start coding something up and you know that something isn't elegant, or you know that something isn't coded up the right way and you just ignore it. You just keep blowing because that's what you do, right? And it might feel like it's faster right now to do that, but in the long run, it's going to be much faster if you stop, fix the mistake, and like get the code that you want to have before mm-hmm. you like, blow past and wait for this big kludge to end up you know, uh, accruing. Yeah, and, and related to that point,
0: you know, playing the same passage over and over and over again yeah. wrong it's not going to help you. So you could spend hours practicing how to code, but if you're practicing it wrong, it's not going to work. Yeah. And, you know, today Bruce Lee died, and something my child teacher told me is that I fear not the man that practices 10,000 kicks, but I fear the man that practices one kick 10,000 times. Yeah. Right? You got to just get better and better every time. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. So it sounds like at this point in your journey, you're working at App Academy, you've learned so much over the last nine months. Now you're writing the Curriculum. You're also writing the backend um, tools for App Academy. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like, and then you decide to go into the job search, right? Yeah. Do you feel like that experience helped you in the job search?
2: Oh yeah, tremendously. I mean, it. I mean, for one, like while I was at App Academy, I was also, you know, advising a lot of the students. Mm-hmm. You know, and those are people who would come into my office asking me for advice on negotiating or how to deal with this interview or whatever. And so, you know, I, in part, I think I was kind of getting antsy at the time that I was director of product in that. I still remember that goal of like wanting to get into Facebook and like the, mm-hmm. the fire with which I came into App Academy with this clear goal in mind, like this, this star that I was going to hit. And then just being like, oh, well, this thing came along. So I guess I'll do this. And I knew that like I wanted to be an engineer. Like for better or for worse, I don't know if I'll be an engineer for the rest of my life. Probably not. But I knew that I need to spend time as an engineer at a software company. And so, you know, I decided at a certain point that like, okay, you know, this is great and I really love App Academy, but. I need to go and explore this thing. I need to actually spend some time as a real software engineer. So I you know, told the founders that I was going to go out and search for a job as an engineer. And it was interesting actually going on my job search because I kind of thought, I remember like, uh, knowing other people who taught at App Academy, all the guys I knew who had left App Academy had really easy job searches. You know, it, was, mm-hmm. it was just totally night and day compared to the students. The students would often have a lot of trouble. They'd have to send out a lot of applications you know, and uh, people wouldn't take them seriously. And most of the instructors, it seemed like they just, you know, they just walked out with an offer in hand, you know, like they almost didn't even have to try. And so I thought that my job search was going to be gravy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I first started applying to companies, all I got were rejections. I think it was like 25 rejections that I got again and again and again. And this was also with, you know, some companies that I'd actually like I knew people like I had spoken with them actually from my time at App Academy and I couldn't get a bite from anywhere.
1: Do you think it was uh, your resume or what do you think was turning them off?
2: I think it almost certainly had to be my resume, you know, Mm -hmm. being somebody who had one, you know, because I withdrew from school, like uh, if you recall the story, technically I graduated from UT Austin in 2014 Mm -hmm. and I started in 2007. So it's like a seven year, seven year graduation (laughs) window, which is technically nine if you count TAMs. So it was like really long time I spent in college studying English with this weird background as a poker player then like, you know, now doing this weird product thing, like working on, you know, boot camp. So I think people just saw my resume and they were like, I don't know what the hell is going on here. This is, this is garbage. And it was, it was really terrifying because I thought that like, you know, I was good enough. I had learned all this stuff. I'd worked my ass off to get here. I thought that I'd be able to, you know, show my skills and actually prove that I could do this. And it just seemed like nobody, I didn't get a single technical screen. Nobody seemed to want to talk to me. Nobody was even interested if I could do this stuff. And so the first bite that I got was from a, a guy who I went to App Academy with, actually. He was, in, he was in my cohort. He was a really sharp guy. He was, well, still is a really sharp guy. And he worked at 23andMe. And so he passed on my name to a hiring manager at 23andMe. And this is when I started realizing, like, okay, maybe I should start using referrals and, like, people I know rather than just going through cold applications. Because it seems like whatever their filters are, I'm not making it past. So, like, the only way that I'm going to get in the door is by somebody, you know, Saying my name and wanting me to kind of jump through that, manually jump that fence. So I ended up getting this phone screen at Twenty Three and Me. I totally blew it out of the water. They invited me on site, and I felt like I killed it. You know, like I every single interview question I just totally nailed. I got all the time complexities optimal. And um, I remember walking out of that interview, like you know, I was pacing back and forth in the train and Mountain View, just being like, oh man, just like savoring every question that I had. Like, God, I nailed that. That was so perfect. That was <laughs> nothing that I would have changed about how I did that interview. What do you
1: think would have happened? So, if they called you that day and gave you an offer, do you think you would have just went with it? Or,
2: you know, because you just
1: faced 20 rejections. And I, you got yeah. this. If they called you back and said, hey, we're giving you an explosive offer in the next <laughs> <laughs> exploding offer in the next day, Uh-huh. do you think you were like kind of because you were at a point like you were kind of crushed from all the rejections? Yeah. You think you would have taken it or you think you would have uh, said no?
2: I think I would have said no.
1: You know.
0: And b- before continuing that that mm-hmm. idea so like when you got all those rejections
2: yeah. like how did you feel like what did did you doubt yourself? I totally doubted myself. I mean I well I, maybe in a way doubting myself is the wrong way of putting it. It's more that, like I doubted my vision of the world if that makes sense. Like I doubted this picture of myself as being somebody who could just walk into an interview and nail it and like have all these offers. I thought okay, I'm going to have to really adjust my perception of how Tech interviewing works. Okay? Yeah, like, I'm not going to be able to just like, you know, show up and write some code and, and prove that I can do this. What did you do to psych yourself back up? Well, one, I think the one, I mean, you know, 23andMe helped because I I could tell that like I could do this. The questions they were asking me were things I knew how to solve. I had the skills that were necessary to do this. Now, when they emailed me back and told me that they rejected me and they didn't <laughs> want me, that definitely kind of dug a little bit deeper, you know, like I thought I was coming out and I was like, oh, no, I'm not. But I think, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of it goes back to poker. When I was a poker player, like I was really young and, you know, I was 16, 17 mm-hmm. at the time and I was losing, you know, the biggest, hardest thing about poker is losing because the thing in poker is that you will always lose. Poker is a game, it's all about randomness, right? And like, there's so much noise and so much stochasticity in poker that there's like, I do I want to say this, I guess I would say the biggest thing about poker that teaches you about yourself is the fact that you have absolutely no control. There is nothing you can do to force yourself to win in a game of poker. If your opponent has a better hand than you or if they're just getting lucky or if they just, you know, go on a hot streak, you have no power. There is nothing you can say or do no matter how great you are, no matter if you're the best player in the world. You know, one thing that I often tell people that really surprises them is that even if I am an amazing player and you are a really awful player, when I play you, you know, there's like a 20% chance that you'll win. And that, that's not the case in tennis or in chess or in almost any other game, but in poker, it's always there. No matter how good you are, there's always a chance that you'll lose. And feeling that day in and day out every day at a young age, I think you just learn, you learn a few things. I mean, one thing that you learn is that any pain is transient, right? Any sense of like self-doubt or disaster or just like, I'm, there's no way I'm going to be able to recover from this. I remember many nights that I, you know, when I was a poker player and I lost half of my bankroll. You know, like my net worth was just chopped in half in one night. And I remember feeling like I'm never going to come back for this. It's is like months of my life that have been wiped away. I'm never going to be able to start over again mm. and like not feel this, this loss that I've just endured. And the reality is like, man, humans are strong. Yeah. And you wake up the next morning and it's a little softer and you wake up the next day and you barely even remember. And like, if you focus on what you have in front of you, Then you know, almost any kind of loss. I mean, obviously, like, there are grades of loss and losing money is one of the easiest things to lose. But everything, everything is transient. And uh, I think when, you know, coming out of uh, getting this rejection at 23andMe, like, that day, I felt like shit. And I felt like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get a job. That was what I was saying in my head. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get a job. But at the same time, I also knew that tomorrow morning, I'm gonna feel different. You know, tomorrow morning, I'm gonna wake up. It's gonna be a new day. I'm gonna apply to more companies. I'm gonna talk to more people. And the process is just going to continue. Yeah. And they can't say no forever.
0: Yeah. And what what did you do to form that plan of action after 23andMe?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that it showed me was that I had a lot more of an in, like I was saying, by getting referrals and talking with people. So I decided, okay, you know, cut the cold applications. Those aren't getting, getting me anywhere. I'm just going to plug into my network and I'm going to talk to everybody I know who works at a tech company and, you know, just do informational interviewing. So I talk about this a lot on my blog. But basically, like I reached out to anybody. It doesn't matter if they're an engineer. It doesn't matter if they're a manager. It doesn't matter if they're a salesperson, if they work in support. If you live in San Francisco, you know lots of people who work in tech. And I literally just reached out to everybody I knew who worked at a company in which I was remotely interested, sat down, bought them coffee, and just asked them about what the company was like and about what their experience was, what they thought about tech, and eventually started getting referrals, getting referrals at more and more companies. And that started this pipeline going. The first uh, thing for me was I I applied to Triple Byte. So Triple Byte is like this company that gets, basically what they do is they do like blind interviews, right? So they take somebody without knowing anything about your background, any of your resume, anything like that, work experience, and they interview you. And if you're good, then they figure out who you are and what you do and how long you've been doing it. And then they try to pair you up with, at the time, I think it was mostly YC startups, but I think now they've, they've branched out. So when I passed their interview, that to me was like the golden egg that was like, yes, I am, like, I can do this. I have what it takes. I knew that I did, and this is like the validation that I needed. And I think, like honestly, after TripleByte, so TripleByte introduced me to a couple of companies. But honestly, the biggest thing that they gave me was confidence. Yeah, you know, just this unadulterated confidence that, like, even if I don't pass the interview, and you know, actually, one of the two companies I applied uh, that I was connected to by TripleByte, I was rejected from. I just had total confidence that I can do this. Yeah, anything that I can't do right now, I will be able to do when I go home and look up the answer from the interview. You know. It's so like, if I just do enough of these, I'm going to nail it. Yeah. And I just know that. Yeah. And from there, it just, you know, I got my first offer, I think from Yelp. And then I got an offer from Gusto, which I was connected to by Triplebyte. Then Triplebyte made me an offer to join their team. And then from there, things just started popping into place. You know, as soon as I had one offer and I let other people know that I had offers, people just started getting interested who normally weren't responding to me. And so I ended up getting an interview with Google and I passed the interview and I got an offer from Google. Then that opened the door to getting offers from Uber, Twitch, Stripe, all these companies that, again, like I wasn't able to talk to at all. And Airbnb was one of them as well, where uh, actually I'd previously gotten rejected for another position at Airbnb. And then chatting with a guy who knew I had an offer from Google, he was sort of able to reopen the recruitment pipeline. I did a phone screen, came on site, nailed the onsite, and they made me an offer. And uh, basically I you know, negotiated, figured out what I wanted, very final stretch it came between Airbnb and Google and I decided to go with Airbnb and that's where I work now. Awesome. Awesome. So let's take a step back to
0: unpack like this whole transition from twenty three and me to the negotiation and the offer to Airbnb. Yeah. So first of all, did you approach the application to jobs similarly to how you approached finding boot camps? Did you just kinda spray and pray after twenty three and me, which I know you set up all the meetings, but then after that, how did you approach the negotiation process?
2: Yeah. So you know, after twenty three, me, I pretty much stopped the spray and pray strategy because I just knew that one, it wasn't. A good, I was still working full time at App Academy while I was doing all this, so not just like preparing for interviews, but also like talking to people, getting coffee dates, you know, uh, sending out emails, doing all this stuff. So I, I was basically only going off referrals because those are the only way, that basically, that I, being somebody who had a really weird background and like the only thing I had going for me was, you know, the ability to instill faith in people that I could do this. That was what I saw as my only asset. You know, my resume wasn't going to do much at all for me. So the second part of your question was- How did you approach the negotiation? So yeah. the referral strategy
0: started paying off. You started getting these offers mm-hmm. and your first big one, it sounds like, wasn't just Yelp and Gusto, but it was Google, which started getting the attention of everybody else where you hit a tipping point and then yeah. you started getting this waterfall of offers. So right. you have all these cards that
2: are dealt to you. Mm-hmm. How do you play them? Yeah. So after I got Google, that that definitely really changed the way that I approached interacting with different companies. because. You know, I didn't know this, although I suspected it to some degree. But as soon as I dropped the fact that I had an an offer from Google, every single door opened. You know, like there was nobody who was willing to put my resume in the trash bin, knowing that I had an offer from Google, you know. It's kind of like no one ever gets fired for buying IBM, right? I think that's probably the recruiter's approach to to Google (laughs) Google offers. And so knowing that, I knew that I could get in, you know, basically any company that I really, really wanted to talk to somebody, as long as I could get my resume in the hands of somebody who knew someone or someone who I knew. Who knew that I had an offer from Google? They would be able to just make the conversation happen. And so, so once I had offers and I had this offer from Google, you know, initially actually the Google offer was not great. It was, uh, I think, it was like one sixty-five all in, and that you know that's including stock and guaranteed bonus, which is you know obviously really awesome. It was more mm-hmm. than I was making at the time, but I knew that it was also like on the medium to lowish end for for Google offers. So, you know, being that like I'd seen a lot of people from App Academy get offers from Google, I think we've had like 14 or 15 students get hired at Google from App Academy. So I had some sense of like what students were making. And, you know, in my mind, I thought that like, I feel like I'm worth more than just like the average App Academy student, you know, but it kind of seemed like from what I was getting that I wasn't. And I was like, all right, you know what, if that's what the world thinks, cool, you know, I'm just gonna have to go and prove them wrong. But I knew in the very beginning that like I had some room to negotiate, right? Because Any offer always starts with the room to negotiate, especially at a big company. So I was thinking, okay, we're going to settle somewhere around like maybe 180 or something. That's what, you know, maybe 15, 15K, 20K, then we'll be able to push them up. But that's probably as far as I'm going to go. And so I remember, you know, when I got the Google offer thinking like, basically feeling like I got like, okay, I've got like 180. That's that's basically what I'm going to be doing for the next year. But as I got more and more of these companies and I started, you know, it's funny, the very first offer that I got, the all- in value, I think it was from Yelp, the all-in value was like 117k, and by the time that I got my final offer from Airbnb, the total all- in value, including the value of the RSUs, was 250k. so it was wow. more than twice what I was originally offered and That's insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was really dramatic and definitely wasn't what I was expecting going into it.
1: yeah and um, I think some in our pre-interview, we talked about a little bit about um, kind of the mindset you should approach each offer Mm -hmm. and kind of the negotiating leverage you want to bring to the table. Yeah, Can you talk about some of the tactics that you've witnessed like recruiters use to take away some of your leverage? Because I think that's very valuable to our listeners. Like there's a few things you mentioned like explosive offers and what Mm -hmm. to do in those cases. Can you just tell listeners what you found through experience that you got to do? Absolutely, yeah.
2: I would say, so the first thing in understanding a negotiation is that You know, negotiations in large part are really about power, you know, which makes them very, very tricky beasts to navigate. And most of the time, most people in most negotiations give up their power, you know. And so one of the big things that you have to do is be really mindful of what your power is, where it comes from, and how to maintain it. And most of the time in a negotiation with a when you're negotiating with like a recruiter, your power comes in the fact that you don't have to take the job, right? That is probably your primary source of power. There are other sources of power in a negotiation, but that is a huge portion of it. So the number one thing that you can do for yourself if you really want to have leverage in negotiation is have another offer. And not only have another offer, but have the other person believe that if this deal that you're making with them doesn't work out, you're going to take the other offer. A lot of people suck at that. They cannot actually represent that like the company they really want to go to, they're going to consider going to the other company if the offer isn't good enough, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so much of a negotiation is about not giving away the way that you really feel, right? Because oftentimes, you know, like, I know a lot of people who, like, for example, they just really, really love one company they've got an offer from. And so they're like, I just know I'm going to sign here. I've got this other offer here, but I know I'm going to sign for this company. They can smell that a mile away. They know exactly what that sounds like on the other end of the phone. And if you say, hey, I want 5K more, I want 10K more, they might give you some portion of that and then say, basically, no, we're not moving any further because they know that that's what they need to get you, right? But if you can actually really represent that if we don't get a deal, I really want to work for your company, but if we don't manage to find a deal that we're both happy with, I'm probably going to end up working somewhere else. Like, If they really believe that, they are going to work their ass off to try to find a deal that they can come up with that's going to be mutually beneficial. So that's one big thing that I think is important to keep in mind when you're in a negotiation. So you mentioned uh, exploding offers and Mm -hmm. you mentioned like tricks that people use to not get you to negotiate. So those kind of go together because exploding offers are probably the primary way that uh, a lot of companies, especially startups nowadays, try to get people to not negotiate. So if people aren't familiar, an exploding offer is basically an offer that expires within usually 24 to 72 hours. So basically you have like a day, two days to you know, reply. And if you don't, then the offer expires and the whole process is wasted, right? That's, that's sort of what they're signaling. And so I actually got a few exploding offers while I was in my job search. And you know the advice that I give, and I talk about this again in, in the blog post, but the advice that I give is that you should outright reject any offer that you get that's exploding. Mm -hmm. And when I say outright reject, I don't mean just like take the offer and then don't do anything with it. What I mean is you should tell them, this does not work for me. If you give me an exploding offer, it's like you didn't give me an offer at all. Like this is garbage. Like this, I cannot do anything with this offer. So it's really unfortunate that we both wasted our time, but like, I'm just letting you know right now that like, there's no way that I can make an important life decision in 24 hours. It just doesn't work. So, you know, I'm sorry, but like there's, I can't literally even make a decision on this. Is an
0: important caveat to do that, to reject something when you have another offer or when you have some experience under your belt or you recommend that in any situation, even coming straight out of a
2: bootcamp? Honestly, I would say that even if you're coming straight out of a bootcamp, almost never will somebody be willing to walk away. If you do that at the moment that they give you the offer, again, this is not something that you do after saying, okay, well, that sounds great. And then you call them back a day later and tell them like, hey, it's, there's no good, this is exploding. You need to make it really, really crystal clear that this is just like a non-starter for you. yeah, yeah. Because there's a huge difference between someone who comes back a day later and says, hey, what is this exploding offer business? I don't yeah. really like this. And somebody who, when they receive the offer, they're just like repulsed. And it goes back to the confidence thing that you were talking about. It goes back to confidence, but it also goes back to giving away your hand. You know, If you are somebody who, when you receive an exploding offer, you just sit there and you're like, okay, okay, okay. And then the next day you call back, they know you're not the kind of person who's going to get an exploding offer and be like, what the hell are you, what are you talking about? of course I'm not going to do this, right? That is a person who has a lot of value. That is a person who knows exactly what they want. And if you don't speak up initially, they know you're not that person, Yeah, right? There is nobody who's like really, really valuable and has a ton of options and is going to hear about an exploding offer and just sit there and be like, oh, okay, great. Thank you for letting me know. They're going to be like, no, what are you talking about? This is bullshit. There's no way that I can do that. Now that said, like, don't be you know, I, the language I'm using is a little bit aggressive. Don't be aggressive when you're turning down an offer, you know, try to always be compassionate and understanding and say like, okay, you know, this really, this really sucks because like I really want to work for the company and I'm really excited and, you know, I really enjoy the interview process, but there's just no way I can make a decision with that amount of time. Like you want to always be excited about the company and you want to always be, you know, happy to continue the negotiation. Definitely. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah.
1: it almost sounds like recruiters whose professional job is to give out offers almost daily. They've done it so many times that they know, like, it's almost unfair that, like, as an engineer or as uh, someone getting an offer, you probably get an offer once a year or maybe once every so so often, Mm -hmm. whereas as a recruiter, you've done it so many times, so you could read people very easily as well. And it sounds like an explosive offer is almost like a test to begin a negotiation, because if you accept the explosive offer that, hey, you only have 24 hours to decide, you don't say anything kind of too rejected, then they already know that, hey, if he start, starts negotiating his salary, all right, maybe we'll give him 5000 more, but we're not going to really like go up because he doesn't value his, himself as an engineer or what he brings to the table. And right. I
0: think something else that you brought up too that's interesting is like being aware of what other people are getting in that position. So like you knew the average person from, that graduated from App Academy was getting X mm-hmm. and they offered you X, but you knew that you were a cut above just given what you had done at App Academy. So you knew your value and you knew that they were trying to lowball you. And so, you know, you had leverage. Right. And you know what their incentives are. They're trying to hire to hit their numbers too. So
2: it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing too that I think is really big in negotiating is understanding, like you said, the other person's incentives, you know? And, um, you know, the thing too is that when a lot of people think about negotiation, they think about it like a zero-sum game, meaning that they think if I get something in negotiation, you must lose something. And there's always, you know, basically if you add the wins and losses together, it's always zero. I can only win what you lose. But that's not really true in a negotiation. And there are a lot of ways in which this really, really comes in handy when you are negotiating. So for example, like when I was talking with companies, one of the things that I would straightforwardly ask them is, which is easier for you to give me? Is it easier for you to give me cash? Is it easier for you to give me salary? Or is it easier to give me RSUs? And, you know, at most companies, what you'll find is that most of the time it's easier to give a signing bonus or easier to give RSUs than it is to give salary. because You know, a signing bonus is a one-time thing, but they don't have to pay again and again, and it doesn't like mess with their payment bands for different salary ranges, and you know they don't have to have it on their books as part of their burn rate that they're going to have to pay every single year. And you know, RSUs, of course, are higher risk, and so the thing is, if you as an engineer are happier, you're like you're totally fine either taking a one-time payment or assuming more risk, then you can actually get a higher value offer by moving more of the money out of salary into stock or cash. And I think I that's that, a very good point. Yeah, quite a few times in uh, in my negotiating. Yeah, awesome, awesome. That's
1: awesome. So let's take a step back and talk about, so it sounds like you were very good at negotiating, but you were even better at solving these technical challenges and killing the sites. And we know that a lot of sites are whiteboarding, algorithm questions, data structures. Can you tell us a bit more about kind of what you did to prepare for those interviews? Because you literally went against the giants, Google, Uber, Stripe, a Twitch. Twitch. Mm-hmm. These companies represent like the, I don't know, the cream of the crop of the engineering teams. So you've seen a lot of their interview mm-hmm. uh, processes. So tell us a little bit about kind of what advice would you have for people who want to prepare for these types of interviews and what tactics you used to get yourself ready?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I first learned computer science at App Academy. You know, mm-hmm. That was like my first introduction to You know, when I came in here, I didn't know what a stack or a queue was. I didn't know, you know, anything at all. And so everything that I, you know, the very seed of what I learned came from the algorithms curriculum at the end of of my time here at App Academy, which I eventually ended up teaching. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I was preparing for interviews, I mean, like, it's a totally different beast to just know an algorithm or know something about computer science and to actually do this thing that is standing in front of a whiteboard and solving a problem for somebody Mm -hmm. else, right? It's, it's, it is performative in the way that like poker, for example, is performative. And so I knew that if I want to get good at this, I'm going to have to practice this thing. I'm going to have to practice as close to this skill as possible. So, you know, in learning, we, we generally call it practice-like performance, meaning mm-hmm. that you want to get whatever it is the way you're practicing as close as possible to the actual performance. So for example, like, you know, Olympic runners, one thing that you, you'll often read is that like they will go the day before the actual race and race on the track where they're going to race. And they'll imagine themselves actually being at, you know, the Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. So- So that's kind of the approach that I took in trying to teach myself how to do these interviews well, is that basically like I would practice whiteboarding with people, Mm -hmm. you know, just in my off hours when I had time with people, I would, you know, sit down with them, give them a problem out of cracking the coding interview, and we'd interview each other and try to give real feedback as though we were in a real interview. So that was like for the actual in-person side. For the skill side, you know, the approach I took was very similar to what I described with Code Wars, Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I talked about this deliberate practice thing. I very much did the same thing when I was learning how to solve algorithmic problems. So, I remember, you know, I got Cracking the Coding Interview, which I think is a really good repository of problems. And basically what I did is I think it was like the first 3 problems out of every chapter, I would go through and I would solve them, you know, so I'd write the code, read up the solution, make sure I actually got it, just to get it kind of in my bloodstream, you mm-hmm. know, of writing code that solves these problems and getting the optimal time complexity. But after you do like 20, 30 of these, you know, like the important thing is actually not the ability to code it because like Once you do enough of these, like you can code up a solution once you know the solution. The limiting factor is actually finding the algorithm and being able to express the algorithm correctly. So after that point, what I would do is I would, instead of actually writing code for the problem, I would just write out like by hand in words what I thought the optimal solution was. Because that's really like the hardest part of the interview. And
1: just to clarify, were you writing pseudocode or writing out like a sentence of how you would say to the interviewer?
2: Yeah, not even pseudocode. I would just write out a sentence, basically. And not even what I would say to an interviewer, but just like so I knew okay. what the solution to the problem Got would be. it, got it. Yeah, exactly. And so I'd say, like, yeah, if I just do this and put it in a linked list and da da da, then this would happen in ON time and ON space. And then I would go look up in the book to see if that was the optimal solution. And if it wasn't, then I would go back and you know, read this optimal solution and and write it down. So then what I would do is having gone through that and like, you know, figured out what the solutions were to all these problems, I would drill myself. Mm -hmm. And so what I had, I had this sort of like kind of running queue of problems that I'd give myself. And anytime I was working on a problem, even if I'd already seen it before, if I couldn't solve it, or if I was taking too long to solve it, or if I, you know, didn't remember the solution that I'd already come up with, I would go look up the solution implemented the same way I would do with code wars, but then I'd put it back into the rotation of problems that I'd work on, you know? So basically like any anytime that I wasn't solid with something, I would keep running into it again and again and again and again until I was solid with it. And that was the approach that I took to preparing for interview problems. So that by the time that I was you know, interviewing a lot of these companies, like a lot of times I'd get problems that, you know, were very close to problems that I'd trained on, you know? And the reality is like the space of possible computer science problems is just not that big. It's like one class worth of algorithms and data structures that every single company is pulling out of their ass. So if you just like learn all of the, well, not all of the, but many of the permutations of these common problems, it's actually not that bad. I think it's something you can do in just a couple of months if you really
1: put the time in. Totally. And on the topic of deliberate practice, did you do it daily? Do you have a certain routine that you were following, like going to the gym sort of, like how you do it five times a week for an hour, you time yourself. You, like, was it something like that or was it more spontaneous where you just try, you had like a rotation and you were just Picking from the rotation whenever you had free time.
2: Yeah. I mean, at the time I was working full time. So Mm -hmm. it really just was kind of dependent on the fact that like some evenings I just had work that, you know, I finished at 8.30 or I had other stuff going on. I would make sure that I put in time every weekend, Mm -hmm. but it was more just a matter of like, okay, do I have two hours here? Do I have an hour here? Do I have three hours here? At the time when I was doing code wars, you know, alternatively back when, when I was trying to apply to App Academy, there I was much more structured. You know, there was more like, I'm going to, you know, spend like an hour and a half at a time. Just working on Code Wars, then I take a break. You know, go refresh myself, whatever. Then come back and basically do it in these sort of sessions that are fairly well encapsulated and don't. You know, trying to code generally speaking for like five hour stretches is not a great idea because you just get so much mental fatigue from sitting in front of there. Like it's it's really good to just refresh your brain and like mm. kind of rattle yourself a little bit and, and get your blood flowing.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Another question is: Do you have any stories of uh, maybe some other people that you've taught this approach? and how they've used your strategies and tactics to either, um, learn how to code or negotiate an offer or find a job at a startup.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> it's funny, actually, I was just chatting with, uh, so my buddy, very close friend of mine who lived in Austin, he was actually the guy I mentioned earlier as mm-hmm. the person who kept talking about wanting to go to a boot camp. Yeah. So he was working as a paramedic in Austin and that's where he and I became really close friends. And, uh, he actually was studying philosophy at the University of Utah. He dropped out and then later got an associate's to go into paramedicine. And so he was working as a paramedic thinking like, oh, one day I'm going to go into this coding boot camp. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to actually do that. And so I came out here to San Francisco, you know, got an app academy, did all this crazy stuff. And I remember I, was, you know, I would call him up every week and be like, hey, you got to come out here. you got to come do this. Like, There's so much stuff going on here. And like, I know that you're smart enough to do it. And so he's a really sharp guy, but he uh, definitely has a lot more imposter syndrome than I do. And so I finally convinced him to come out here and I I gave him the exact same regimen that I follow of like, you know, grinding out code wars, you know, like just hours a day. He got into App Academy. He came out here. He went through the course. He graduated fairly high up in his class. And uh, basically all the advice that I have capitulated to you guys, he did the exact same thing and like coming to me every weekend being like, hey, I'm having trouble with this. (laughs) And so I remember, you know, just babysitting him uh, many, many weekends where he was freaking out about not knowing whether he could do this and again, this is a guy without even a college degree, you know, Mm -hmm. not even what I had. And uh, yes, he's been, I think he graduated in January Mm -hmm. and he actually got a job. He was one of the very first people out of his cohort to get a job. And he got laid off from that job, like two months later. And he like was just devastated because he thought like, wow, this really, this whole coding bootcamp thing worked. And he was like, no, it didn't. It totally didn't work. Like they found out that I was a fraud. He had this whole narrative of how everything had just collapsed and He was found out, but like, you know, I kept coaching him and this very same thing with like working on different problems that are cracking the coding interview, going through this Mm -hmm. rotation. And actually just a few weeks ago, he got an offer from a startup in San Francisco working in a rail shop and uh, he's killing it now. That's awesome. He, (laughs) remember when he got his offer, Mm -hmm. he only had one offer and he was like, I can't negotiate. I just got to accept it. I just got to accept this offer. And I was like, no, dude, you have to negotiate. You have to negotiate. <laughs> and I like, I almost wrote his emails, like didn't write his emails, but I like basically like strongly advised the wording of his emails and like I coached him on the phone of how he was going to go through these phone calls. And he ended up getting, I think like 15K more wow. than they initially offered him Wow! Wow! when he signed. Yeah, that's amazing. Very cool, very yeah.
0: cool. So what are you up to now? Like what's your plan? I know that um, I know a lot of people that initially read the headlines of mm-hmm. the story, you know, saw you know, the dollar signs, but we, we had a, a pre-interview kind of like, what are you thinking about doing next?
2: Yeah. So um, actually, I guess this is something that I, that I haven't really spoken about in this interview, but you know, originally the reason why I got into tech and originally the reason why I wanted to go into a profession like law or business school or tech in the, in the first place was because I wanted to earn to give. So the whole idea of earning to give for those who haven't heard of it is The idea of giving, basically pursuing a a lucrative career so you can donate more money to charity. And so, you know, there's this whole movement called effective altruism, which is all about finding the most effective way to improve the world. And, you know, I became convinced at the age of, I can't remember how old I was, but, you know, two years ago, that earning to give would be the best way for me to have a really, you know, powerful impact. So most people, when they think about earning to give, they might think about someone like, you know, Andrew Carnegie or Bill Gates, who's like, makes a crap load of money and then donates it to charity, right? Which, you know, in a way, when you're that rich, it's kind of harder not to donate to charity than it is to donate to charity, right? Because like who what are you gonna do with your extra billions of dollars? But the idea of earning to give is to give money no matter what you're making, right? Or not necessarily no matter what, but you know, if you're making not very much money at all, probably you don't you don't have any money to spare to give. But basically, because of that, every year since I've started making money out here in tech, I've been giving 33% of my income Pre-tax, right? Pre-tax, pre-tax, wow. yeah. And you know, I'm I'm doing that in large part because this is That's one awesome. of the biggest ways that I think that I can have impact directly in my life, and hopefully also through the things that I do myself. But you know, so this year my hope is that I can give about uh, 50 grand, which is going to be because obviously I, I get RSUs, but those RSUs don't turn into cash for quite a while unless Airbnb goes public. <laughs> um, so basically, yeah. So I'm going to be donating uh, that amount of money to charity, and I hope to do so every single year. And uh, to donate more and more, and that eventually I can donate half of my income is my goal. But I'm not quite there yet because San Francisco is pretty expensive. But my other goal so, you know, right now I'm working at Airbnb as a software engineer, and uh, I really love it. It's an amazing place. But I know that eventually my goal is going to be to go into entrepreneurship yeah. and to found my own company someday. Yeah. So I don't know when that's going to happen. You know, my, I'm still got my ear to the ground, I'm still figuring things out. But I know that someday that's in the cards. Awesome. Awesome. I'm amazing. all rooting for you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So at this point in our podcast we do the lightning round and this is the point where uh, Ruben, Arthur and I will ask you a series of questions. Try to give us uh, brief answers but include tactics, strategies and any resources that you use to get to the point where you are today. Okay. So this question is will take you back to the basics. So imagine you get dropped in a new city, you only have 100 dollars, you don't know anybody and you're starting again from scratch. What would you do and how would you spend
2: that 100 dollars? Mm. Is this uh, in America? Anywhere. Anywhere. Well, it matters
1: a lot where. Well, you get to decide. I get to decide which city? Yeah, you get to decide where
2: you get dropped. Okay. I would drop me in San Francisco and I'd find some of my friends. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds pretty good. Okay. I would imagine that it's a city in the United States and I don't know anybody. Yep. But I can speak the language. Yep. Okay. I can speak the language. Yeah. Probably what I would do. I mean, if I really imagine this, probably what I would do is like I would try to find the nearest university and go to like the nearest bar in that university and try to, ask, like, try to like talk to people and see if I can build a relationship. Because I think, I think it tends to be the case that like students tend to be the most welcoming of random people with $100 in their wallet and uh, with no other idea what they're doing. <laughs> so probably I would start there. That's I, nice. like that. I like yeah, that. I like that advice.
0: And throughout this process, whenever you hit any of those roadblocks or any type of slight doubt, you talked a little bit about your process, but was there any piece of music or a movie that you watched or a quote that you heard that kind of inspired you to kind of like get psyched up and
2: break through that wall? Mm, that's a really good question. Yeah, I think actually <laughs> there's this book that I read a couple of years ago that really, really influenced me. It's, it's by this guy, Par Lagervist, who won the, uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature and it's called Barabbas. You guys familiar with Barabbas? You ever heard of Yeah, the, of the in the character? Bible. Yeah, in the yeah. Bible, right, mm-hmm. exactly. So obviously I'm not Christian, but, but I'm familiar with the story of Barabbas. He was the guy who was um, crucified, or who was, sorry, he was going up. to be crucified, yeah. but he was like a, a brigand of some sort. And um, you know, it was decided that he would be not executed and Jesus would be. And so the story follows the life of Barabbas Interesting. after he is basically freed. Wow, And uh, it's kind of about this guy who sort of has to regain his life or to try to figure out the meaning of his life, being that he's now been exonerated for something that he shouldn't have been, you know? Very interesting. uh, It was, I remember that story really, really having a deep impact on me. So I don't, I don't really know if it's the most direct answer to that question, but I'd say that book. That's a great answer.
1: Wow. So the next question is, having gone through this journey of breaking into a startup, learning how to code. Teaching others how to code at App Academy. Mm-hmm. What is the one piece of advice that you would want one of our listeners to know who is uh, contemplating um, maybe leaving their corporate job and uh, breaking into
2: startups? Hmm. What is the one piece of advice? If you're working in a corporate job, I would say, you know, as much as maybe hearing a lot of these narratives. I mean, I imagine if they're listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. they're probably inundating themselves with narratives like this one. As much as a lot of these narratives make you think that the right answer must be to quit your job and throw everything away and just like go jump into the deep end. I would imagine that for most people, that's probably not the right answer. And for most people, I would guess that there's a lot that you can probably do right now that you're not doing. And the fact that you're not doing that thing that you could be doing right now is sort of a stronger litmus test in a lot of ways of whether this would actually be something that you should do. So, you know, I'm thinking right now of like, you know, let's say that you're somebody who works in customer support or finance or some, some other thing, right? you probably know developers. And if you don't, you could very easily meet some. You can go in the evenings and go learn, you know, how to code on Codecademy. You could talk to people who work at your company who are already engineers and ask them if they'll teach you, right? Like there are many, many paths mm-hmm. to Rome, And, you know, before you decide that it's time to throw everything away and like gamble it all, know for sure that like, this is something that you just, there's no way you can't do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know. I I sometimes think, so I struggle a lot with writing. And, you know, when I was younger, I really thought that I was going to be a writer, that this was going to be a big part of like who I became. And I I did eventually write a book, but it was a very uphill battle to write that book. Mm -hmm. And one thing that writing that book taught me is that I am not a writer in the sense that like, it is not something that I wouldn't be able to just function or live if I didn't do. You know, if you told me I'd never have to write again, I would probably be mostly relieved.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and that's not true for everybody.
2: Yep. There are some people who if you told them you can never write again, their life would not even be worth living anymore. And those people are the people who end up becoming great writers. A lot of them are still shitty, but a lot of them become great. So that is, that is probably the r- response that I'd give.
1: Awesome. And I guess uh, going through this process, what is one thing that you fundamentally believed in that you changed your mind on after completing, going through App Academy, finding a job, becoming an engineer?
2: Hmm. One
0: thing that I changed my mind on.
1: Yeah, that you fundamentally believed in going into the process.
0: So you, you believe something going into the process and then right. after the process, like you changed your mind. I changed my mind.
1: Or maybe you had a notion or something, yeah, a yeah. belief that you...
2: That's tough because I'm right about everything. So it's really <laughs> hard to... No, no, no. Um, let me think. I mean, I, there are some things that I can think of that are more personal, but I'm, I'm trying to think of something that's more extrinsic to me. I guess the thing that kind of surprised me and talking to a lot of these companies, I think that that was kind of one of the the formative experiences, I guess, for myself, is that companies actually can't tell a lot from you from interviews, you know? Like, I was really, you know, the way that I'd kind of imagined interviews before I started doing them was that there's, you know, there's like this window into your soul and then a company like sees you as you are and they decide whether you're the kind of person who's going to work here. But the reality is that like an interview is just like, it's just a mess. It's just totally bullshit and weird and sweaty. And it's just like, Okay, you know, I guess you're I like you for the, you know, 40 minutes that I met you. And companies kind of some companies kind of get that. Like they do kind of understand that there's actually not that much that we can know from you, even from interviewing, know about you, even from interviewing you. And so just seeing that first seeing that in the flesh and seeing that really, yeah, like companies see this very, very thin slice of who you are, and there's a lot they can't tell about you from an interview.
1: So is that something you could use to your advantage?
2: Well, absolutely, right? Because that's why it actually helps to prep for interviews. Mm-hmm. If interviews were a window into your soul, there'd be nothing you could do because you know you're not going to change your soul in, in a few months. But yeah, the, the very fact that that is the way they are means that you can prepare specifically for interviews and work on interview skills. And it's kind of weird that like you know it's sort of arbitrary in the same way that like people who are good at negotiating make more money, right? Why do they deserve to? Not really. You know, it's, there are a lot of people who are really excellent at their jobs who sh- suck at negotiating and they don't make as much money. But it's just a reality of the fact that negotiating is just a part of running a, a marketplace. Yeah, know? yeah. And so the same thing, I think, with interviewing is that people who are good at interviewing get better jobs. Yeah. But there's not a lot that you can really do about it. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I remember something you said before how you should never forget that interviewers can't read your mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that was super powerful because some people come into the process thinking, oh, like, they're gonna somehow figure out what I'm feeling or how much I like this company or how much I don't like this company. Yeah. But it's... I mean, you said it way better than I did, but can you just touch on it a little bit?
2: No, totally. Like, I mean, that's one thing that people always, always fear. And this, I, again, like, it's kind of a connection back to poker, right? Where one of the worst things that you can do in poker is think that your opponent thinks the same way you do, or that they know the same things that you know, but they see the world the same way that you see the world, right? I mean, that's just like a basic thing about communication and, and interpersonal interaction, but it gets so magnified in negotiation where somebody is just terrified that, you know, the recruiter is going to know that i don't have any other options or they're going to know that like i'm not good enough or they're going to know that like whatever it is that they that you think they're going to know they're not going to know it unless you tell them or you give it away through your behavior you know even if you're like nervous on the phone or even if you're fumbling or fidgeting right like the reality is that most signals are noisy meaning that even if you're giving away some signal that you're nervous or that you're scared or that you don't have any other better offers or that you know if they rescinded this offer you'd be devastated right they don't know that All they know is that you're nervous. And you could be nervous for a million different reasons. Some people are nervous just all the time. Mm -hmm. So like stop believing that people can read your mind because they can't. They can read your actions and your actions can often give things away, but they cannot read your mind. That's awesome.
0: And last question, can you share any online resources outside of your blog, Code Academy, Code Wars, that you feel would be helpful for people that are trying to break into tech?
2: For breaking into tech, specifically for engineers or- Whatever. Whatever. Okay. So I'd say, you know, one thing that I've found super helpful is uh, actually a podcast by this guy, Jeff Meyerson, called Software Engineering Daily. Mm -hmm. I love Uh, it. I listen to it almost every day. Yeah. It's a great, great podcast. And uh, I've been listening to it since I first got here to the Bay. And it's just given me a lot of context on just understanding from a wider lens, the ecosystem of tech and, you know, just different companies, different technologies, the way that developers talk about tech. The easiest way to learn that is just by listening to them, you know? And so it's like, I don't know. It's all, to me, it's almost like immersion therapy, right? It's like, if you want to learn French, go to France and just listen to French people all day. And yeah. You will learn French. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't
1: know if you want to break into startups, uh, just listen to this podcast. Or just
2: listen to this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, exactly.
0: There you go. There you go. Yeah. So, how can people get in touch with you? Like, what's the website for your blog and everything else?
2: Yeah, totally. So, my blog is hasibq.com. I guess you could hopefully. We'll yeah. definitely
0: include it in the show notes. Okay, yeah. Or how to spell my name. You can spell it out if you want.
2: Okay, it's mm-hmm. dot qcom And you can find me on Twitter at Haseeb, which you can also find just in my website. Awesome. Awesome. Very
0: cool. Well, thanks again for spending time with us. Yeah, And guys. I, we look forward to having you back after you, you make your next moves. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot, man. God, man. Thanks for checking us out.
1: We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.